0: Last May, Donald Trump unilaterally violated the 2015 nuclear agreement between Iran, the U.S., and five other world powers, and followed this up by reimposing harsh economic, trade, and financial sanctions against Iran. Back in July of 2015, the U.S., along with Russia, China, and the European Union, had agreed to a joint comprehensive plan of action. Under this agreement, Iran would be protected from economic sanctions in exchange for accepting to subject its nuclear research program to international inspections. This agreement was widely seen as a crowning achievement of former President Barack Obama's foreign policy, but was vociferously opposed by Israel, Saudi Arabia, and their allies in the US. Once in power, the Trump administration decided to violate and terminate this hard-won accord, calling it a quote, bad deal. And it has since ramped up what it calls a maximum pressure campaign against Iran, a maneuver aiming to strangulate Iran's economy, which now extends as far as bribing Iranian tanker captains to surrender control of their ships to the U.S. With so much attention given to the war of nerves between Iran and the U.S., how are the U.S.'s backbreaking sanctions impacting the Iranian population and the Iranian economy in general? To get some clarity, I spoke with Farnas Fasihi, who's an Iran expert and a journalist at The New York Times.
1: When the Trump administration exited the nuclear deal in May of 2018, it reimposed economic sanctions and banking sanctions on Iran, which meant that all foreign investments uh, going to Iran would be subject to secondary sanctions if European or Asian countries post the nuclear deal had invested in any of Iran's energy or um, economy sectors they had to pull out, if uh, shipping and banking, which meant that Iran uh, could not easily access the international banking system and uh, bring money, conduct financial transactions in exports and imports of goods or or access to its revenues. So this was the first part, which which was uh, pretty significant. For about six months, the U.S. gave Iran um, oil waivers. It allowed Iran to continue selling its oil, and then it sanctioned its oil. And then in November of last year, and then this May, May 2019, the Trump administration ended the waivers, which effectively it means that Iran can't legally, by U.S. sanction standards, can't sell its oil. And even if it sells its oil, would have a very difficult time getting access to the revenue through the banking sanctions and transfer that money back to Iran.
0: At the moment, is Iran selling its oil to China and India?
1: The U.S. sanctions are aimed at bringing Iran's oil exports down to zero. That is impossible to do, short of the U.S. blocking, physically blocking tankers that transport Iranian oil and finding out actually which tankers they are. What we know is that through shipping companies uh, or tracking companies that track tanker oils and through port data is that Iran's export of oil has dropped dramatically. Before the sanctions, Iran was selling about 2 million.1 barrels a day of oil. And now the best numbers are about between 300,000 to 500,000 barrels. That's a pretty dramatic drop. So it, mm. it's had a real impact on them. Uh, they continue to, now the oil that they sell is going still to China, to India, to Syria, some of its traditional markets. Uh, they claim to Europe, although we don't have any proof. Uh, and they've become very clever in trying to evade these sanctions. Uh, but it, it has made a pretty significant dent in, in the revenues of Iran.
0: So given that one of the key sanctions on Iran is limiting its ability to move money through the global financial system, as you said, what is Iran doing to circumvent or go around the sanctions?
1: Well, one of the things Iran is, is doing to uh, go around the sanctions is to Ship its oil on tankers that are not registered under Iran. They do tanker to tanker or ship to ship exchanges of oil in open water that they turn the, the GPS GPS off so it's hard to track them. They also change the documents on the ship so the point of origin doesn't say Iran, it says another country. So they've become very clever. I reported on a for the New York Times on a story about how Iran's oil data has become uh, a really valuable espionage information for Western uh, spy agencies because for the Trump administration to be able to gauge how effective its sanctions uh, have been and whether how much of an impact it's having on Iran's economy, they need to know Iran's Uh, output of oil and sales and revenue. And Iran has guarded that information extremely closely. The oil minister has said that our oil data is war data. So there's a lot of espionage and a lot of sort of intriguing ways that Iran is trying to figure out. One of the things that some of my oil sources in Iran told me uh, is that the oil ministry opens these bank accounts for just a few hours in different countries, under different names, under, you know, kind of like fronts. And as soon as the money is moved, they close it. So mm-hmm. Those bank accounts exist only for a few hours, making it very difficult for the U.S. or Europe to actually track them down and see how they move money.
0: How could they uh, move uh, tens of millions of dollars without they, being they noticed? They
1: through... They do it through um, registering under names that are not Iranians, through banks that are very difficult to trace, and that are accounts that are open merely for a few hours, and they're closed. As, as soon as the money moves, those accounts are closed, so it's hard to get a hold of them. Actually, one of my sources said, several of my sources said, that the U.S. pays up to a million dollars uh, for any information and the numbers of those bank accounts. Uh, and we saw in the news yesterday that Brian Hook, the special envoy for Iran in charge of the Iran policy of the Trump administration, had emailed the captain of the Iran tanker that was seized and had to- offered him millions of dollars in exchange of the captain sort of sailing the ship to shores of a country that was friendly to the U.S. and where the U.S. could seize that ship. So really, the focus of the sanctions for the U.S. is targeting Iran's oil revenues and making sure that it it blocks Iran's access to the revenues. These are the two key components of Mm -hmm. sanctions. The rest are all symbolic. Like we've seen Ayatollah Khamenei's. Financial entities yeah. sanctioned. We've seen uh, the foreign minister Javad Zarif sanctioned. We we see names of uh, Revolutionary Guards commandos sanctions. These are all really symbolic because none of these people have any assets in yeah. the West. They don't have any bank accounts. But the sanctions that really aim to hurt uh, are the banking sanctions and the oil oil exports.
0: You spoke about U.S. trying to blackmail oil tanker captain on this mm-hmm. ship called Adrian Daria One, formerly known as Grace right. One. So what do you make of this latest news? The U.S. is extending its sanctions by, as I said, trying to blackmail and then threatening visa ban on the crew of deceased Iranian super tankers. Can you remind us of why this tanker was seized in the first place, and why has it become such an important issue?
1: This tanker symbolizes the U.S.'s ability or uh, lack of ability to stop Iran from selling oil, right? This tanker has become the embodiment of whether sanctions on Iran's oil are working or not, right? We know that despite the sanctions since May, we're now into September, Iran has been able to sell some oil about 500 to 700,000 barrels a day. Now, if the U.S.'s goal is to bring that number down to zero or even bring it lower and lower because it wants to squeeze the Iranian regime economically, uh, what it needs to do is make the cost of aiding in Iran to transport its oil uh, very, very costly for anybody involved. And sort of the hierarchy involved in this transportation goes from the company that leases the tanker, the company that allows Iran to fly the flag on the tanker. Which like is the Panamanian. Know, the, Malta, they're just, right, yeah. the crew, the company that insures it. So they're really going after the lingers of people and entities that are involved in any Transportation and sales of Iranian oil. Mm. Now, it's impossible for the US to uh, actually uh, identify every single tanker out there uh, in open seas uh, as an Iranian one and try to do this. So now that it has found this uh, formerly Grace 1, Adrian Daria 1, and it knows that this is an Iranian tanker with Iranian oil on board it wants to really target it and put maximum pressure on it to make it an example for others that are out there.
0: This tanker was supposed to deliver, this is what the United States claimed, that it was going to deliver oil to Syria, about two million barrels of oil.
1: Correct. The U.S. and the U.K. say that, uh, based on the information and intelligence they have, this tanker was going through uh, Gibraltar to the Mediterranean Sea and to Syria. Iran has denied this mm. and said that this was not going to Syria; it was going somewhere else. They haven't told. They haven't made it public where it was going because this is part of their secret oil data information. But now, because of all the pressure on this tanker, the tanker is sort of going around in circles. It first tried to go to Turkey, but Turkey didn't allow it. Oh, first it went, wanted to go to Greece, then it wanted to go to Turkey, then it wanted to go to Lebanon. And all of these countries denied access because of U.S. pressure. So it's now, I think the latest I heard was that it was in Syrian wires trying to figure out what what to do. We might see this tanker go back to Iran to sort of, you know, offload and, and get the the pressure off it, mm-hmm. and then retire the ship for Iran, uh, at least. And then we'll see what happens uh, with the oil and who's actually... who. We don't know who's the real buyer. There's no information.
0: Bloomberg has reported that this tanker, this oil tanker, mm-hmm. has disappeared from satellite tracking not far from Syria's coast, prompting a speculations right. the ship is about to transfer its cargo to another vessel out of view of global ship monitoring system and and Yahoo also has reported that they have turned off their trackers which seems like Iranian ships do on regular basis do all the time
1: right exactly so if th- this would be in line in in how Iran usually attempts to deliver uh, its oil it turns off the GPS other vessels come meet it in international waters They also turn off the GPS, and there's a ship-to-ship transfer. Now, mind you, this is exactly what North Korea has been doing, too, because North Korea is under sanctions to purchase oil. And we know that the North Koreans have been evading not just U.S. sanctions, but actually U.N. sanctions on purchasing oil by this ship-to-ship transfer. So ship-to-ship and turning off your GPS is a very classic way of trying to evade sanctions. So, United
0: States is trying to basically show that it can't stop Iranian ships right. from moving and selling their oil as an
1: exactly. That's exactly what the U.S. is trying to do. It's trying to make an example out of this one tanker and make the cost of uh, helping Iran sell its oil extremely high.
0: So as I said, the U.S. has adopted this maximum pressure policy on Iran, and many argue that it's intended to force Iran to the negotiation table. You follow Iranian government's reaction to these back-breaking sanctions. What is Iran's policy and its approach to this issue?
1: Iran's policy is twofold. Iran's policy is to increase the um, tensions, that we've seen sort of take a much tougher stand when it comes to the Persian Gulf, seizing tankers, shooting down drones, you know, disengaging with the nuclear deal. Um, tomorrow, I think the third phase of not complying with the nuclear deal is, is set to go into place. So they're pursuing that. They're sort of pursuing a very hardline policy in trying to say, well, if if you're not if you're not letting us sell our oil and you're not letting us do banking as you were supposed to because of, this, of the nuclear deal then we're not going to comply with some of the provisions of this nuclear deal uh, so they're doing that on the other hand they have really started to engage and speed up diplomacy we've seen that if make a worldwide tour go from mm-hmm. Europe to G7 summit in France and uh, go to Japan, go to China. He's in Malaysia. So we we've seen sort of both a hardline stand when it comes to military and nuclear policies, but also an escalation of diplomacy to try to get uh, either oil waivers from the United States or get the Europeans to buy its oil or to get now as Uh, you know, President Macron of France is trying to mediate between them, get some sort of line of credit that allows them uh, to have access to oil revenues, basically. But the U.S. is not interested,
0: but the U.S. doesn't seem to be interested in that um, line of credit.
1: We don't know because Trump did say at the G7 summit that he might agree to a line of credit that would allow Iranians to get through this, as he called it, rough patch. Uh, so it all depends on what Iran is willing to concede to in exchange of the line of credit. I think these negotiations there's intense negotiations going on uh, in the back rooms of, uh, I think, both Washington and Tehran and Paris as it's mediating between them. I think it's too soon to tell whether what Iran is willing to give up and what U.S. is willing to give. Hmm. Um, it's too soon to tell. We don't know. I mean, the French first said... We're sure that the French president first said, oh, there's going to to be a meeting between Rouhani and Trump. And then they said there might might be oil waivers or $150 line of credit. So it's very fluid, I think.
0: So let's move on and talk about something that I think is getting hardly any attention. And I think it's one of the most important aspects of these sanctions. The U.S. claims that the food and medicine are exempted from the sanctions, but there is Mm -hmm. ample evidence that the shortage of medicine has greatly impacted Iranian population by denying them adequate and reliable access to medicine and medical equipment. Can you tell us more about the impacts of the sanctions on availability of medicine?
1: Well, I think the first thing we we should say is that Iran manufactures a lot of its own medicine. It imports some medicine that it can't manufacture, but a lot of your everyday medicine, from painkillers to antibiotics to whatnot, are manufactured in Iran, right? There are About 80%. Companies, 80%. They're pharmaceutical companies that manufacture medicine. Now, these, ma- these pharmaceutical companies need to bring, import raw material. In order to import raw material, they need to have some way... To pay for them right so the u.s claims medicine is exempt but if you block financial transactions how can a uh, pharmaceutical factory import the tons of raw material it needs and pay for it those payments are not exempt right financial transactions are not exempt so we're not talking about when they say medicine is exempt, we're not talking about just bags of medicine going in in suitcases. Mm-hmm. We're actually talking about an industry, right, a whole big industry. And if that industry doesn't have access to the international banking system in order to be able to do financial transactions, then it impacts its production. So hence we're seeing a, a, a very serious shortage of medicine in Iran. I spoke to one of my very close friends who's a doctor. She comes to one of family of doctors, her parents, are, and her grandparents, her husband, they're all doctors. And she was saying that when I prescribe medicine for my patients, I don't know if they're able to find them because even if we tell them go get antibiotics, they go to the pharmacy and the pharmacy is rationing all the medicine. They won't give them a box of Tylenol or a box of antibiotics. They just sort of take a sheet or they give them 10 pills and say, this is all we've got. Come back in 10 days. If I have more, I'll give you. Or the medicine Uh, that for chemo or for Alzheimer's that's being imported, it's become extremely expensive and hard to find in markets. Anyone who has Iranian relatives in Iran knows that if if you're going to Iran, the first thing they're going to ask for is is medicine. When you say, what do you want me to bring you? They say medicine, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, there's a real problem. There's a real human impact uh, of the sanctions that unfortunately sort of gets lost In all the policy talk and the, you know, talk of oil and nuclear policy and military policy and tensions, we're actually talking about 80 million human beings and families and kids that are living there and their lives are impacted from the price of food to getting access to crucial medicine. Farnoz, you
0: covered the war in Iraq, the invasion of Iraq. You lived in Iraq, reporting from that country how do you compare the sanctions on Iran with those imposed on Iraq during Saddam's era?
1: Well, I went to Iraq when Saddam was still in power, and then I went uh, at the time of the invasion. And even when Saddam was still in power, you could really feel the impact of the sanctions because the sanctions had been in place for a very long time. You could, you could see that people were, um, you know, they didn't have much that they were making do. That there was a real VL- that their hospitals and medical care and everything has sort of just uh, deteriorated over time right And I think if the sanctions continue, Iran will face a similar problem you know the Iranians are making do we have good health care and good education and they're great Iranian doctors but if depends on how long they go on, if sanctions go on as long as they did with Iraq then, we will see a very, you know, sad and similar impact.
0: But it's good health care for people who can afford it.
1: Right, good health care for people. What I meant is we have good doctors and good physicians. I didn't mean that we have... Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, it's not free. You need to... Yeah. Um, you I mean there there have money. Talks. There have been many reports that if you don't have money and you go to the hospital, even if... I think there was a report of a child that needed stitches, and they took him... It was a small town, if I'm not mistaken, near Esfahan a few years ago, and they Mm. refused to... Accept uh, them. to, ...to accept them, and it became a big scandal, and I think they fired the head of the hospital and it became a public sp- scandal thanks to social media because there was public outrage about it. So yes, there's that as well. um,
0: I was wondering, is there a different financial system, global financial system for food and for medicine as opposed to for oil and um, other major commodities?
1: There's not a global, separate global financial system, but the Europeans have created this in a Financial channel for this purpose for Iran to be able to do the trade that it needs and have access uh, to money that hasn't really been functional and and Iran wants that to also include oil revenues and Europeans buying seven hundred thousand a barrel a day of oil from Iran as you know per but but that also creates a lot of problems because a lot of these oil com European oil companies are not state owned they're private and they are you know they have lot of business with the US so they're not going to risk secondary sanctions of the US government because they want to do business with with Iran so these this whole sanctions apparatus is very complicated has many different components and layers and which is why I think that uh, in my opinion from what I hear that Iran wants to figure out a way to negotiate because it's it's really uh, I don't think they can survive yeah it's Mm -hmm. hurting and I think reality is dawning on them that Donald Trump might get reelected and the economy can't sustain this level of pressure for another four years or another you know, six years.
0: One more question about this financial channel, as you said, instex. Right. So if for example Iran wants to buy, let's say, I mean, medicine for Alzheimer's or mm-hmm. for certain types of cancer. Why can they use, since food and medicine is presumably exempted from sanctions? Mm-hmm. Why can they use this existing financial channel to buy medicine to basically pay a European pharmaceutical company through this system? Well, we have
1: to. Y- this system hasn't that hasn't been operational for that long, so we have to see how it does. The mm-hmm. idea is that they. Uh,
0: we'll be able to, but it's a new
1: one. Right.
0: Oh, it's a new system. Right. So more broadly, how are these sanctions hurting Iranian population? Iranian currency has lost nearly 70% of its value against major currencies. Prices of essential goods like food, clothing, housing are skyrocketing. We talked about availability of medicine. Can you give us some concrete examples of how ordinary people are coping under such dire economic circumstances?
1: I think everybody's purchasing power has shrunk according to their level of assets and income. I think it's affected everybody because when your currency devalues as as dramatically as Iran's did over the past year, when prices of goods go up, up to a hundred percent, it affects everybody. I think for the middle class and the working class, we hear families that can't afford to have any kind of protein meat or chicken for several months that they've had to, Iranians have had to change their diet uh, because they can't afford the goods, that buying a house or even renting a house is much more difficult. Finding jobs is difficult. People have to work several jobs. I mean, Iran's economy hasn't been great and a lot part of it is because of sanctions and part of it is because of mismanagement and corruption and just not a healthy financial system. So you take that dysfunctional economy and you add sanctions, international sanctions to it and yes, people are hurting.
0: Yeah, and very opaque. A lot of the statistics and figures that we see cannot necessarily be verified.
1: Right, it's very hard to verify numbers and really know whether the uh, numbers that the government gives for inflation are the same as what actually is. But what we know anecdotally from speaking to Iranians and interviewing them uh, is that, uh, you know, their purchasing powers are shrinking, that the that they, their price of everyday goods that they need, basic food items, has skyrocketed in the past year.
0: You have spoken to some of the officials in, inside Iran. What are they saying about the impacts of sanctions on the government's ability to generate revenue? Iran mainly depends on oil revenues, which constitute around 40 percent of the government's current budget. Last Iranian fiscal year, the share of oil export revenues in the budget was about 33.3 percent. is according to a report by Radio Fardo. Rouhani has recently claimed that the country has been through the worst part of it, and the economy will be doing better and will be on the upswing.
1: Well, the Iranian officials are are known for sort of defiant rhetoric and uh, trying to sort of tap into that revolutionary zeal of we will get through this, and you know we are uh, we're going to manage economically, uh, but. At the same time, if you listen and follow their speeches closely, everybody, even Mr. Rouhani, acknowledges that sanctions are hurting the country. Uh, I, I haven't ever heard anybody say that, oh, sanctions are nothing, they're not hurting us, that, you know, they're having no impact, because they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have to live there. You can't. It's a fact that you can't really deny. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they, they think sanctions are going to... Uh, topple the regime or create the kind of uh, instability that Washington hoped. Now, part of the U.S.'s maximum pressure campaign on Iran uh, was sort of geared toward uh, hoping that these economic pressures and sanctions would lead the people to rise up against the regime. But we've seen in North Korea, even in Iraq and Libya, in Cuba, in all these cases we've seen in Venezuela, that sanctions alone, short of a military intervention, I can't really. When you're dealing with dictatorships, when you're dealing with countries that crack down very harshly on dissent, and uh, in case of Iran, you know the the factory workers that were protesting because of their lack of pay uh, have been thrown in jail and given sentences of up to 20 years. Right. So Iran's treating this any sort of protest or uprising about the economy. As, as a foreign sort of instigated threat and cracking down on them. We haven't really seen the kind of massive uprising that Washington had hoped from Iran. We do see many pockets of protests and people being very angry about it, but it hasn't materialized into an uprising against the regime.
0: Fanos Fasihi is a reporter with The New York Times. She spoke with us from New York. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.